Turn with me, please, to uh, First Peter, Peter's first letter that he wrote called First Peter. <laughs> We're in chapter 2, so you want to really give attention to chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. We're studying the spiritual advantage the Christian has. You say, advantage over what? Well, advantage over the devil. Advantage over the world as a system. Advantage over the selfish flesh that wants to make us sin. Say, why do we have a spiritual advantage? Because of all the privileges that we have in our salvation. Last year, we studied a very fascinating topic from a book written by a guy named Scott Christensen. And the name of that book was, What About Evil? And it was really about God's role in the presence of evil. And that might sound strange. Because you think, oh, whoa, no. The role is get away from it, right? It was about his role in that. And it was a very profound study, and it was a very important study. And the idea of that is to explain what is his relationship? Where did evil come from? Why is it even here? What's this all about? Well, it came down to two parts of God's character and understanding how it is that God could have made all things, and all things include even this topic called evil. The two parts of God's character that it came down to, the beloved is the answer to everything in life, are this, God's sovereignty and God's goodness. His sovereignty and His goodness. Listen, everything flows through from those two truths. Everything. Everything flows from those two truths. That God is sovereign, that He is the King, and in being the King controls all things. And that He is good. God's goodness, His mercy, His love, blessing. And here He is, and He's powerful, and He reigns like the King over all. But at the same time, He's merciful and loving, and there's blessing. As the King, He's full of justice. What He says goes. And as... Being all goodness, he's the only one that can help us. Everything God does makes that statement that he is good. Now, nothing makes that more clear than what God brings to our table in salvation. It is the dividing line 
In fact, the unbeliever struggles with those two truths. The unbeliever struggles with the fact that God is free and unconditional in his sovereignty. With God's free and unconditional sovereignty. And the unbeliever also struggles with God's goodness. Mention war or disease or famine. And those true truths about God will be two truths that the unbeliever attacks. He's going to go after those. The world struggles with all the wars and the hate crimes and the violence and the abuse. And it struggles to think that God can be good, that there is a good God in light of all of that. In light of all of the bad. It struggles with Psalm 145 verse 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. Did you hear that? He's both righteous and kind. Psalm 52 verse 1 Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The loving kindness of God endures all day long. He struggles with it. But the ones who know that God is good are believers in Jesus Christ. The ones who know that God is good are believers. They're the ones that, though life throws its curve balls at us, the difficulties, the relationships that we weren't expecting, maybe the money situation that we weren't expecting, maybe the legal situation we weren't expecting. And it is all thrown at us. And it is, it is the believers in Jesus Christ who know that God is good. We know. In this passage, we are going to study, you have those two kinds of people. That's why I bring it up. They're here. The ones that know God is good and the ones that have rejected His kind of goodness. Here is God and we see his goodness in creation. We see his goodness in extending life. We see his goodness in discoveries through science and knowledge to make things that help us live. How about God's goodness in light of all of our sin and all those people that sinned during Noah's day and yet it says before the flood, God had Noah preach for 120 years. It's a long time with all those chances to repent and only a few of them made it on the boat. Sometimes you'll hear people think that it was so extreme for God to bring a worldwide flood and destroy all and yet only eight be rescued. But I ask you, 
what about the 120 years of preaching? Is that unfair? God is good. You can see God's goodness in rescuing Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, wasn't that Abraham's concern when he said, if there are 20 righteous, will you spare? Yes, I will spare. You say, well, why talk like that? Because we can see God's goodness in creation. We can see it in his redemption plan. We can even see God's goodness in all kinds of discoveries. And we can see it in the salvation each and every believer has received from him. Let me say it this way. The gift of eternal life comes with many, 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 many gifts. So you have the great gift of salvation. And you have all these many gifts. Many gifts of goodness, of blessing from God. And we're calling them privileges in this passage. You say, well, how do you know that God is good as a believer? Well, look at your salvation. Look at your salvation and look at all the privileges or blessings that you received in your salvation. All the many many pieces of goodness that God has blessed you with. In a sense, 1 Peter 2, verses 4 to 10, is the study of God's goodness test and salvation. It's all grace. And by the way, that's what the word for gifts means, grace. And so we understand them as grace gifts. Little graces from God. Wasn't that the promise back in Genesis 12? I will bless you, Abraham. And salvation comes with that blessing. Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Every blessing for those that are in Christ Jesus, it says. 2 Peter 1, 3, same thing. James 1, 5, God who gives to all generously. James 1, 17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. And so God showers those gifts in salvation from above to every Christian. You say, what, what are those gifts of grace? What are those pieces of goodness? Ten of them. Ten pieces of God's goodness to us who don't deserve it. Let's look at the first one here. Number one, and we've looked at this already, union with Christ. The very first thing that we notice from this text that we receive in our salvation is union with Christ. Verse 4 says, Coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. That's salvation. That's how he describes salvation. Coming to him. And we talked about that. It's not just coming to him, um, but it's continuing to come to him. 
Not to earn any salvation, but because we have it. And this is now the direction of our life as believers. Jesus died, but then now is a living stone. He lives, and so we're talking about resurrection life here. So coming to him as to a living stone, the resurrection stone, which has been rejected by men. And so notice in verse 5, you also as living stones. You see, he says, you also. We're like him. And so the first piece of goodness is union with Christ, one with him, that we're in him, he and he in us, living stones in the same way being built up as a spiritual house. And that just means that we are placed with Christ into this house. Not this house, but into the house that he is is making with all believers. That's good stuff. You know, we're all different shaped stones, aren't we? According to how he's graced, gifted us. So this kingdom house that God is building is built with all these stones that are just like the living stone. Now you remember we compared all that we have in coming to Christ like a diamond on the velvet. And the jeweler, he takes that diamond and he, a really good one, will take that diamond and he will begin to turn it in all the different facets so that you can see the brilliance all over the place and to appreciate the beauty of that diamond that you are, you know, doing all that little research and homework for, man. It's, you know, before you got married, you remember doing that, right? You, you, and Because you, you wanted your wife to know, hey, you're like this diamond, right? So forth. See, I don't remember doing that. Well, don't tell your wife that. Okay? The jeweler takes that diamond and turns it over, and each facet, you can see how much brilliance is in it, and that's what Peter is doing. And so he says, that's not all. Let me turn this a second place in a second way. Point number two, access to God. That's the second peace of goodness that we have from God and our salvation. Access to Him. Now we get this point from verse 5. Take a look at it. A spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now the main privilege of an Old Testament priest was access to God. And if it wasn't done right, you'd die in, in, in His presence. No man could be in his presence without the Lord allowing it. No man can see God and live. Jesus Christ at salvation gives us access to God. We have a priesthood. Let me say it stronger. We're priests. All of us. And I told you that was one of the key texts for me. I was a Roman Catholic. and The Lord had saved me. And I came across this and realized... I think this verse is telling me I'm a priest. And so I had to let my priest know as much as I loved him and appreciated him, no longer need the services anymore. I've got to go a different direction here because I have all the priests I need in the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only that, he's made me one too. And I don't even think I need the collar thing, you know. 
They could just go around in regular clothes and just do the priest thing. God is, but all this means here is that God has given us access. By the way, I don't say that in any disrespect to those guys. But this is just kind of, that's just kind of where I was. God has given us access. Hebrews 4, to approach the throne of grace, we just come to Him, see? And we come right to Him, Hebrews 4 says. Don't have to have any of the incense stuff. Don't have to have the little jingling bells. Don't have to have the chalice being lifted up. Don't have to kind of have special prayers and all that kind of stuff. Jesus Christ has opened the way. You can come right to God. You have access to Him because you're His priest. See? And you come with the very blood of Christ. The last time we talked about what that means, you you know, and I mentioned this to you, and I've talked with some of you since, and kind of you've affirmed that. I mean, you know, we often hear, even, well, believer priests, you know, it's like, well, what does that mean? We don't even know what that means, really. And that's because we don't know what a priest was all about. And so we showed you ten characteristics of the Old Testament priests last time. And we drew out some similarities to our priesthood from the Old Testament one. But notice from our verse that it's not just characteristics, but a priest does stuff. Take a look at it. Peter says, we offer what? Spiritual sacrifices. Say, what are those? Let me tell you what they are. They are God-honoring works done because of Christ and under the direction of the Holy Spirit. God-honoring works done because of Christ under the direction of the Holy Spirit. Because of what Christ has done. Now what are those works? These works are guided by the Word of God and so we find seven sacrifices in the New Testament that, he, that are spoken of, and I want to give them to you, and we'll just kind of work through these here just as we finish up our thoughts on this point. First of all, the sacrifice, the very first sacrifice that you can bring, that you can make before the Lord, is the sacrifice of you. The sacrifice of you, yourself. Romans 12.1, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, your spiritual service of worship. This is you offering you. You see? It's offering your whole self. It's the sacrifice of you. You know, I think sometimes we misunderstand salvation and we think it's, and it is a free gift. And it, by the way, it costs you nothing from the standpoint of you can't merit it. But just as our dear brother Steve Lawson has preached and told us before, it will cost you everything. It costs nothing and yet it costs everything. That's right. And the Lord doesn't save, A.W. Tozer said, the Lord saves no one whom he cannot command. And so, it costs everything. 
That's why it speaks of putting ourselves on the altar. Now we know that we are moving away from our priesthood when we start complaining about how much commitment it takes to serve. Right? I mean, think about that. If it costs us everything, what are we doing complaining? When we do all that we can to protect the self, well, I need a little me time or whatever. When life is more about comfort and convenience, we know that we're moving away from our priesthood, from the work of our priesthood. Second, the second sacrifice we are to offer is praise. Praise. Hebrews 13, 15. And again, I'm just taking these right from Scripture. Not that hard to see these. He says, through Him, that is through Jesus, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. Now, I'm going to say this. But no, I say it with love. Did you realize that one of the reasons we sing songs is to help you make your offering to the Lord? Did you know that? And listen, not just songs, but just praising God all the time, all all day, being thankful to Him because all of life is a gift given to you, right? And so we're just trying to help you you know, make your spiritual. That's why we got these. We have these songs. We come, we sing, trying to help you. Third sacrifice we offer: sacrifice of yourself, sacrifice of praise, the sacrifice of help. Help. Hebrews thirteen sixteen. Do not de- neglect doing good. Don't neglect helping people. That's what it says, basically. Don't neglect helping people. When you help others because of Christ, you're being a priest. Did you know that? Fourth, the sacrifice of sharing. Hebrews 13, 16. Again, it says, and sharing. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. What kind of sharing are we talking about? The sharing of your resources for the good of others. The sharing of your resources for the good of others. So here we are, we're priests. Priests make make, uh, sacrifices. We offer sacrifices. So what does that look like for us? It means the sacrifice of yourself. It means the sacrifice of praise. It means the sacrifice of help. It means the sacrifice of sharing. That is, sharing what you have to help another person. And then we could add a fifth sacrifice from the New Testament. And let's call this one ambassadoring. I made the word up. I said it had a red line underneath. I know it. But it's true. Ambassadoring. Say, what's an ambassador? God has made us all at salvation ambassadors of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.20. Read it for yourself. See, what's an ambassador? It's one who goes to uh, a person or a group 
who is sent, that is, one who is sent from, you know, a person or a group representing that person or group, and that you go speaking for that person or group, okay? So you're sent representing so that you might speak for the other person or group. You're an ambassador. And so everything you do reflects on the other person, right? Or reflects on that other group. Everything you say, in fact, with the ambassador, you can boil it down to those two things and understanding who they are. They represent the other person and the things that they say. They represent the other person and the things that they do. The whole country, if you will, in some cases. How does this connect with us? We represent Jesus Christ and we come with his message. We come telling people they need to be reconciled to God through Jesus. Second Corinthians 5.20, listen to Romans 15.16. Because of the grace that was given to me, this is Paul saying this, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now that is another way of saying my priestly job is to bring people to Christ. And it's yours too. I introduce them to Him. I just simply point people His way. I say, oh, you need to know the Savior. You need to know that there is a Savior. Sounds like the struggle that you're having is because of your sins, and there's good news for you. There's a Savior, and I can point you right to Him. See? I let people know they need Jesus. There's a sixth spiritual sacrifice we make. And let's call this one denial for others. Denial for others. Ephesians 5.2. What are we denying? We are denying our desires. We're denying our wants. Sometimes we're called, you know, sometimes as parents, you know, we're trying to help our children understand how important it is for them to deny certain desires. But I think that they don't understand why often. And they don't know how to connect that to Christianity. It's important that you help them understand the reason why we're denying those desires is to be able to help others. It's for others. Listen to Ephesians 5.2. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us in offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Now that's a sacrifice, right? So what's the spiritual sacrifice we're making? We are walking in love. We're giving ourselves up. How did, the, how did Jesus give himself up? He denied... The self. That's Philippians 2, right? Denied 
By the way, it talks about fragrant aroma. Some of the sacrifices had some spice to it that made a fragrant aroma for God to enjoy. You say, does God have a nose? You say, well, I never thought about that one, right? It talks about fragrant aroma. But, no, he doesn't have a nose. This is just a way of saying God enters into our joy, all right? He enters into our joy. What's the sacrifice? It's loving. It's loving like Christ loved us. How did Christ love us? He gave up his will for God's will. But not my will, but your will, Father. Remember him saying that over and over and over? And that kind of love spills over to others. Loving like Christ and giving up his will for God's will. That's the sacrifice. So it's denial for others. It's denying the thing that you could be enjoying for yourself so that you might spill over love for the other person. So it's denying your wants, your desires, your will for the sake of others. The last sacrifice we can call supplicating or praying. Revelation 8, 3, another angel came and stood at the altar holding a censer and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. Now this is a scene in heaven and it's given some great imagery and the whole point of it is about prayer. You say, what is the golden altar? It's the altar in heaven. And so this is a heavenly picture. Now what do you do at the altar? You make sacrifices. What are the sacrifices here? Prayer. Prayer. So when we pray for others, that's a priestly sacrifice. Did you know that? When we pray for others. Now let's put this all together. When you put all of that together, that's what it looks like to carry out 1 Peter 2.5, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And all of that is because we, as priests, have access to God. This is just a phenomenal point this way. A phenomenal point. You know, sometimes you hear people say, well, if only I could, if I could just have a conversation with God, I know what I would tell him. You know, I have something to say or whatever. And I think to myself, well... I talk to him every day. I have a I have a conversation with him every I go right I go right into his presence every day. Every day. You know why? Because I can. And you know how I know that I can? Because Christ paid for it. And I come in with the blood of Christ, able to talk to him 
able to come to Him, able to do the things that He wants me to do only because He has given me this great, incredible privilege. Now you remember in the Old Testament, no person had true access to God, not at all times. But now because of Christ's sacrifice, we do. And we make spiritual sacrifices as priests, sacrifice of self, of praise, of help, of sharing our stuff with others, of ambassadoring to bring people to Christ, of denial of our wants for the good of others, of supplication, praying for other people. And that's an incredible privilege. That's another piece of goodness that we all have in our salvation. What a distinction. What an amazing thing. Do you realize if you wanted to go into the President of the United States, right up into his room, right up to where his his place of business is, you couldn't do it. You couldn't do it. I mean, even people here that are in the military, they couldn't do it. But we know one who's higher than the President. He's greater than the president. And you could come right to, you have access right to him all the time. It's good stuff. But we're not done with turning this diamond. Let's turn it another way. And you see another facet that shines in brilliance. And let's call this third piece of goodness, point number three, security in Christ. Security in Christ. Now this point is that we have security in Christ from our salvation. And this is an amazing piece of goodness. See, what do you mean by security? That you never lose it. It is never taken away. So many people that have the view that you can lose your salvation. Let me give you some thoughts here. And I'm telling you, by the time we get done with this point, I I think you're going to be convinced. If you're a believer, you're going to be convinced that we we can never lose it. John 6, he who believes in me will never thirst. What does the word never mean in the Greek? We're not all, we don't, we don't need to be Greek scholars. That's one of those words that, that doesn't have a whole lot of, to it, except that it just means what it says. Never. That's what it means. The one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. All that he has given me, I lose nothing. Boy, pay attention to some of these words. All. Nothing. I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. I myself will raise him up. Same thing in verse 44. In other words, so far, three times Jesus says, I will raise him up on the last day. What are you trying to tell us, Jesus? I'm trying to tell you that I'll raise you up on the last day. Are you saying you'll raise me up on the last day? I will raise you up on the last day. Are you sure you'll raise? I will raise you up on the last day. Three times. He said three times. You say, why do you keep repeating it? Because Jesus kept repeating it. 
And then you get to verse 54. Do you know what he says in verse 54? Listen to this one. And I will raise him up on the last day. All right. So Jesus, you're saying you're going you're to raise me up on the last day. I will raise you up on the last day. Why do you keep saying that, Jesus? Because it's a piece of God's goodness that's too good to be true. Security in Christ. That's what Peter is saying in 1 Peter 2.6. Look at it. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. We have to explain this here so you can get to where you need to get to. Notice that Peter doesn't use the formula for it is written. He says, this is contained in Scripture. And that's because he's not quoting the exact verse, but he's giving us the sense of the verse. The, the idea, he's telling us, what I'm trying to tell you in the thought is in Scripture. In fact, he gives three different types of, three passages, three verses. He gives Isaiah 28, 16. He gives Isaiah 8, 14 to 15. And he gives Psalm uh, 118 verse 22. This is how the Holy Spirit wanted us to see the meaning of that verse here. That also means the Holy Spirit considers, by the way, all of the Old Testament scripture. All of it is God's word. All right, so what scripture is he first talking about? Isaiah 28, 16. Say, so what does Isaiah 28, 16 talk about? Talks about a stone. You remember what Peter called Jesus back in verse 4? A living stone. So we're still talking about him being a stone. A choice stone. And then you get to verse 6, and Jesus is a cornerstone. And so, stones all over the place. The Greek word for stone is lithos. He uses that word, and then he uses a different word later on, which is the word Petra. Lithos is a little stone, and Petra is the large, ginormous stone. And then he uses another word for cornerstone that we'll get to explaining here in a moment. But all of these are the connection to Isaiah 28.16 to tell us something massively significant. What's fascinating to me is all the places where Isaiah 28, 16 is quoted in the New Testament. And I won't give you all of them, but I'll just give you some of them. Romans 9, 33 and Romans 10, 11, for example, which are talking about our salvation. Or Acts 4, 11. And they all say that Jesus is that stone. In fact, the first one to connect Jesus to the stone of Isaiah 28, 16 is actually Jesus himself. Matthew twenty one forty two. Jesus calls himself this. He connects himself to this. And so you put it all together, and what the Old Testament and Jesus himself was saying was that the Christ was going to come and be the cornerstone in God's kingdom. The very house of God was going to be built on this very stone, Messiah, as the cornerstone. 
In Isaiah, the Isaiah 28 passage also says, I lay in Zion a choice stone. What's Zion? We hear this word a lot. And so I'll help you understand this word just in, in brief. But that's another name for Jerusalem. It's another name for Jerusalem. And whenever the um, Old Testament authors used Zion, they were trying to connect us to the spiritual side of Jerusalem. They were trying to help us be connected to actually the covenant side of Jerusalem. Sort of the heavier spiritual name for Jerusalem. Now when you do a study on Zion in the Old Testament, you find that it's connected to the new covenant. Sinai, Mount Sinai is connected to the old covenant. Zion, the new one. Now that makes sense because Sinai was all about what? The law. Zion is all about the new life that we have when it says in Ezekiel 36, our sins will be forgiven and we'll be cleansed and we'll receive a new heart of flesh and not stone. He is saying the new covenant will be about this choice stone, a stone of grace. Sinai was a stone of law. Now the word choice means elect, divinely selected. Jesus is God the Father's elect stone. Handpicked. And it you can't help but uh, not think about first Kings eight. Remember first Kings, I think it was his chapter six through eight, where Solomon has the temple built, right? And when he has it built, remember what he, what, what he did? He had these stones brought over and they were made in such a way, just chiseled up and prepared in such a way that they didn't use tools and they fitted them together. It's, it's, it's as though he is saying, Jesus is the hand-picked prepared perfect stone and all the other living stones are prepared too. Handpicked and prepared. Every piece of stone for the building was handpicked. The new covenant, instead of a physical temple with physical stones, this time the Lord picks the stone, Jesus himself and the other stones and the ones he will save and makes himself a house just like he wants it. The temple in the Old Testament, the spiritual house of Jesus and the saints in the New Testament. The Old Testament was just our picture. Now we also notice that Peter calls this stone a precious cornerstone, not just elect, but precious. Precious means literally irreplaceable. An irreplaceable stone, a stone of unbelievable uh, 
estimation of value beyond value price, which made it the most honorable stone. Sometimes we say priceless. What makes this stone so valuable and irreplaceable? It is because he is the cornerstone for our Lord's house. Now, what is a cornerstone? We've talked about this before, but let me go a little bit deeper here and I'll help you understand this. The word literally means at the extreme angle. At the extreme angle. That's what the word literally means. The extreme angle was a, it was a right angle and it set all the dimensions both horizontal and vertical. Okay? Very, very important stone. This cornerstone. And it gave alignment to the whole building. And so this, that stone set all the angles for the house. Everything was measured by this stone. And I'm so thankful for builders that build houses. I have tried to build things and nothing is ever aligned when I try to build it. I'm that guy, right? That when you before I you know, I go out there, they we every year we spray the field out there uh for football and when we don't have the little plumb line deals, we just do it by hand. It it looks like somebody, you know, it looks like a drunk man has kind of gone through the deal there. There's, there's nothing straight about about that line. That's how it would be if I were the one building the house. But this house is not built by me, and it's not built by you, and you can be thankful. There is a cornerstone. Now, you could say it this way. The cornerstone was the stone that kept the whole building straight, not crooked. Now, because the cornerstone was the most important stone to set the building, it had to be inspected. It had to pass inspection by the the builders. Now, the key statement for this point is actually the last few words. Look at them, and then I'm going to put all of this together. It says, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Let me put it together. And he who is a stone in this building will be satisfied with how it's built. You're going to like how this thing is built. But he says he will not be disappointed. Literally, the word here for disappointed means will not be ashamed. This is the crux of God's goodness to us in salvation. This is the privilege for every single true Christian that he will never be disappointed. Never be ashamed. That he will never fail in the final sense. It's a promise that you will never be disappointed in Christ. Not only disappointed in what you have in Christ, but to be a disappointment to Christ. And the idea of this word is to place hope in someone or something and to come out deceived. It's to be let down. 
You know, you put so much confidence in that thing to work and then it falls flat, it's empty. It's unable to hold up its claims. How sad. How sad. That is so much the experience that we have, that so many have, with parents that have failed children, children that have failed parents. And we're all failing each other. Many a man has claimed to be the smartest, to be the strongest, to be the most faithful, to be something unable to be defeated, only to fall and fail and be shown up. It's failing to come through on the promise. And you you can hear the echo of those words, can't you, Dad? But Dad, you promised. Ouch, right? It's failing to come through on the promise. And what Peter says from Isaiah twenty eight sixteen is this Christ will never disappoint you. Your salvation is so secure, you'll never be let down. Isaiah 50, verse 7, For the Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. Peter is saying that's our claim in salvation. Or how about Isaiah 54? Listen to this one. And really the whole thing is is amazing, but I'll start at verse 4. Fear not, for you will not be put to shame. And do not feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced. But you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts. And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. And the whole rest of Isaiah 54 just gives one reason after another for why we will never be disappointed. Verse 10, listen to this. For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you. And my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. You know what the idea is? Never, never, never. Isn't that what Jesus was saying in John 6? And I will raise you up. Never will I let it happen that you will not be raised up. And I think it's passages like that which Paul used to say stuff like he does in Romans 8. This is the New Testament version, by the way, of Isaiah 54, verse 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's how he starts. (laughs) I mean... And he says so many things throughout. I mean, and he just goes on and on this way. Verse 29, for those who before knew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Who's going to make, if he saves you, he's going to make you like Jesus Christ. So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. And that's an unbroken string of salvation stuff. 
And then verse 34, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? And then in verse 38, I am, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you hear the never, never, never in that? Yeah. I love the statement, who will bring a charge? Who's going to bring a charge against us? I don't care what they do out there. Whatever thing they're trying to do, whatever legal thing they're trying to do, they think they can do, they can't take away this. That's what First Peter 2.6 is saying. We will never be disappointed. Never be ashamed, never. You will never be in the place where God has failed you. You will never have to fear that. That's the point Isaiah 20.16 makes, and that's the point here. You'll never have to fear that. And you know, beloved, we live with a lot of failure today. Dads or moms that fail children, and children that grow up and fail parents, and Husbands failing wives and wives failing husbands. and Bosses that fail employees and teachers that fail to be there for students and even personal failures and goals that you don't reach and promises you made that you break. But here is our Lord and He says, I will never fail you. You'll never be disappointed. Let's turn the diamond to see a new facet of God's goodness. And this will be the last one we see this morning. And let's call this one point number four, affection for Christ. Affection for Christ. These are things that we have. Pieces of his goodness that he's given us. So let's put the two verses before us and then see what it means. Just an amazing couple of verses. Look at it. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve... The stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. Verse 8, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, where they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. Now, Peter is still quoting Old Testament passages, and in this one he quotes Isaiah 8.14 and Psalm 118, verse 22. And he uses those passages to show a contrast. And oh, man, I won't take long to be able to tell you this, because you'll see it, but the contrast is amazing. And it's very important. It is a contrast between a believer and an unbeliever. And the unbeliever is called here a rejecter of Christ. Now what's the true believer like? Follow it. The first part isn't as clear in the NAS. Look at what the NAS says. This precious value then is for you who believe. Now what is precious? Precious. 
He's already told us. Jesus, right? The stone. It's choice. It's precious. But here's a better way to translate it to get the idea. This then is for you who believe that he is precious. This then is for you who believe he is precious. What's he saying is for us who believe he is precious. You get a Jesus who will never be disappointed with you. See? But notice what he is saying is distinctive of a Christian. That he is precious. That's, that's another way of saying affection for Jesus Christ. The Greek word here for, is um, time. It means a full of honor. What clearly identifies a person as being a true Christian is that Jesus Christ is precious to them. To him. He's talking about love for Christ. He's talking about having affection for Christ. That's what a Christian is. One who has love for Christ. Affection for Him. Salvation is God changing our hearts to love Christ. It's that simple. Romans 5.5 Pouring God's love into into your hearts to turn around and love Christ. That's not just true. Listen, that's a great privilege. Love for Christ. And what's the contrast? Notice verses 7 and 8. Rejection, stumbling, offense. For the believer, what? Precious. He's honored. Timae, honored. We, we receive him as our cornerstone, aligning our lives to him, coming to him to measure our lives morally, right? He is priceless treasure to us, and we love him. I'll tell you, listen to me, the basic definition of a Christian is one who loves Christ. One who loves Christ. Not one who is perfect. Not one who crosses all his T's and dots all his I's and, and, and can be able to spout amazing theology and has this amazing catalog of sound doctrine. Oh, we want to encourage you to learn sound doctrine. But the reason is because you love Christ. John eight forty two. Jesus told those Jews, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. But he says, you love me. And I know that you're not of him because you don't love me. To know God is to love Jesus Christ. That's just what Jesus told his disciples in John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then later on in verse 21, he says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, 
is the one who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. And, and he speaks in this sort of a amazing relationship that just kind of goes all over the place in love. See, Verse 23 of John 14, Jesus says, If anyone loves me, and then in verse 24, he who does not love me. See the contrast? He who does not love me, he says, does not keep my word. That's the contrast. Love for Christ. You don't keep his word because you have no interest in keeping his word because you have no interest in Jesus. There's no interest in Christ. There's no love for Christ. And so somebody comes and shows you scripture and you kind of shrug your shoulders and go, don't know what to do with that. It doesn't move you because there's not really love for Christ. To believe in Christ is to love Christ and is to obey Christ. And they all go together in this connective circle. Matthew 10, 37, 2 Corinthians 5, 14, they all say that. I mean... 2 Corinthians 10, 14, or 5, 14, excuse me, Paul says, I am constrained by the love of Christ. It compels me to do what I do. Now, put the text all together and we get the picture. The stone which the builders rejected. Here are the builders. And their job was to examine the stone and then receive it or reject it. Who are the builders? Who's he talking about as the builders? It's in particular, he's talking about those Jews during Jesus' day. But it's any unbeliever. Oh, they were the build they were the builders. They were building their kingdom. And it came to the cornerstone and the father said, here's the cornerstone. You're interested in the kingdom. Here's the cornerstone, you builders. You put that in the house and you'll have the house that you need. And the cornerstone came down and and the builders inspected it like they were supposed to do. They inspected this cornerstone. And here they are building their religions and building their spiritual views and the, the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and many, many people examined Jesus and said, No. No, that's not our kind of Messiah. That's not the cornerstone we want. And the Father and the Son told them, But if you build the house your way, it will it's like building on sand. It's going to be it's going to fall apart. And they said, no. No, we, we like our, corner, our version of a cornerstone. We're going to get a different cornerstone. We'll make it ourselves with our own efforts, in our own wants, in our own desires, in our own lusts, and it'll be what we want. We reject this cornerstone. We wanted something different, something that could fit with the things that we love, this world, this flesh. And so they put Jesus up to their own standards of measure and said, that's not what we're looking for. He fails our test. Verse 
not our kind of Messiah. <laughs> Worthless. That's what they. That's what they. That's what the builders said, and they continue to say that, don't they? Throw that stone out. But there's a problem with that, and you're going to see it here in the text as we kind of bring this together. That cornerstone they threw out became a rock of offense and a stumbling block. Here's where we get the word Petra from. Like John 6, they couldn't stand his teaching. Who can listen to this? These things are too hard, they said. They stumble, it says here, because they're disobedient to the word. What does the stone of stumbling and rock of events mean? It means judgment. And I want you to understand the kind of judgment with this word Petra means a rock that is ginormous. And that when it, once it falls on you, will absolutely crush you to bits. Literally a crushing rock. Listen, Jesus will either be precious to you and you'll love him as the stone of your life or you will reject him and he will be a crushing rock to you someday. One last thing here. Notice, to this doom, they were also appointed. See, is that saying their unbelief was appointed? God made them not believe? No. No, I mean, if you think about it, doesn't you can look it up. Maybe someday we'll, we'll do this. Maybe, maybe the next time we were in our study, we can do this. Romans 9, 22 and 23, just mark that down. I want you to think about this here. How much work does the Lord have to do to keep an unbeliever not believing? Nothing. Just let him go. That's why Romans 1 says he gave them over. Just let them go. They'll go where they want to go. Nobody goes to hell unwillingly. You go there because you wouldn't receive Christ. That your heart didn't want, you, you rejected, you inspected the cornerstone and you said, not my Messiah. Listen to John MacArthur explain it this way. Their unbelief is not destined or appointed. Their doom is appointed because of their unbelief. The penalty for their sin is appointed because of unbelief. The unbeliever can even look at the truth and say, I know it's true, I just don't want it. That's what John 3 says. As we conclude this here, what's at the heart of this whole thing? 
Christ is the stone. He's the cornerstone. You either come to him as the living, resurrected stone that he is, or you're offended by him and reject him, and that same stone crushes you in judgment. But at the heart of all of this is love. And what defines the unbeliever is that he or she has no affection for Christ. Why don't people believe in Jesus Christ? Because they love their sin. And you can't love your sin and love Christ. But for us who believe, Jesus Christ is precious to us. We love him and that's why we follow him. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Christ. What a treasure we have in him. Help us to dig deeper in understanding all that we have in this piece of goodness that you've given to us as salvation, Lord. And uh, we want to give you the glory for that, Father. And so, Lord, as we now turn our attention to the Lord's table, we pray, Lord, help us to just uh, have good meditation, Lord, on just what it means that you died on the cross for us. That is, that you were punished in our place. We thank you for that. Help us to always be at that place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.